Thank you, Jason. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Jason, I uh, thank you for that introduction, although I, I, I get embarrassed at introductions like that. They just never say enough. <laughs> but uh, it will do. I am so glad to be here uh, today and, um, and just to be led in worship and in prayer as, as you have. Um, uh, you, you know, in the Episcopal Church, some of them are um, stayed, <laughs> let, let us say, just, uh, and, and not a lot of movement, and others are uh, very lively, uh, but just singing the songs, except for maybe a couple of them I, I hadn't heard before. Um, this is the, the type of worship and music that our youth uh, do, and when we have our, um, a couple of times a year, we have youth retreats. And if you have any teenagers, I welcome you to it at our diocesan conference center um, where their decisions are made for Christ. People, uh, uh, our kids commit their lives to Christ and they form bonds that really take them through college and they keep coming back and do events. And I do an annual event with our young people. It used to be called the Bishop's Ball and you get dressed up and all that stuff. But now we just call it Bishop's Bash and I, um, and I come with my axe, uh, I used to play in a band. <laughs> and so I, I, I play guitar and all that, and we have a band behind me, and it's really a big dance and all that. But then we'll have some testimonies and, and things like that uh, to always say we're here because of the Lord. We're here because of the Lord. But it's just an open invitation. Any teenagers, find out when we do that. We now have three people in our uh, diocese who just work for youth. Who do you? We believe a lot in youth ministry. You're welcome to it. And man, I want to send some people here. So uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, knowing Jason for these last four years and having dinner with your leadership last fall at uh, 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 New Hope here. It was just it just brought great joy to me and to people that I'm working with. I am among friends, friends in Christ. And I will tell you in a few minutes why that's important, that I call you friends. The gospel lesson was read. Do not believe, do not think that I have come to bring peace, Jesus said. Do not presume that I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But I'm usually, by all, all the time when I'm in churches, I go to a different church every Sunday, and, if it, and I have this and an alb and a stole and a chasuble and sometimes a cope over that with the big mitre hat and a stick. I'm glad to be here this morning. <laughs> but apparently, um, without my chaplain, I sometimes lose... Uh, my glasses. Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Okay, I can understand that one. But, and one's foes will be members of one owns one's own household. Whoever loves father 
or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. What do we do with that? Let us pray to God for inspiration. Let us pray. Tell us what we need to hear, O God, and show us what we need to do to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, when faced with difficult texts like this, and by the way, I was assigned this text, uh, uh, the Luke version, but I, the, the Matthew version, I was assigned by Jason uh, because he doesn't like me. <laughs> but he says that you're in a series of uh, preaching on difficult texts. I like that. When faced like difficult texts like these, though, there's the temptation for preachers to take the stance of the early film comedian W.C. Fields. Who here remembers W.C. Fields? Yep, you're old, you're old, you're old. <laughs> when, he was, uh, when he was gravely ill in the hospital bed, he amazed his friends by doing something they thought he would never do. He was leafing through the pages of the, of the, of the Bible, the good book. When asked why, he answered with a straight face, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> Well, uh, we can be tempted to look for loopholes this morning in this scripture lesson because I just can't believe that Jesus has something against families. What kind of family values are these? The American family has enough foes already without religion becoming one of them. Unemployment, lack of education, homelessness, hunger, and poverty and other social ills are taking a heavy toll on families. And when you add the common traumas of alienation, separation, divorce, custody disputes, spousal abuse, violence, and even homicide, you can readily see that the institution of family is in a dangerously precarious position. The family household, unfortunately, for too many people, was more like a war zone than a safe haven. And no one knows how to hurt each other the way that family members do. Some have wondered, in the Civil War, why was it so vicious? Tens of thousands of people dying every day. It was carnage in the Civil War. But sociologists will tell you, well, it was between families. This really was brother against brother, cousin against cousin, and they can be really vicious. Of course, members of broken families may torment themselves even further by entertaining notions of what the perfect family is. Somewhere in Leave It to Beaverland, I suppose there is a family where before the delicious sit-down family dinner begins, a warm and sensitive ward cleaver comes home and is greeted at the door by a smiling, done-up, well-dressed June cleaver. And he enters a house where nothing is out of place, 
The family dog brings him the paper. Teenagers are respectful, and everybody flosses. (laughs) And yes, they go to church gladly every Sunday. Can't wait. Well, call me jaded. I'm just, I'm just a jaded Episcopalian. I don't see that that often, <laughs> that kind of picture. The truth is that some families fit the classic television image and others do not. Some families have had to struggle with mental illness, behavioral disorders, hopelessness and fear, while others have not. Some families are close and others are not. It's easy to see the problems of broken families. Lack of opportunities, lack of hope, lack of faith, lack of God. It's easy. But close families can have their own set of problems that are not readily apparent as well. The principal danger is Uh, that is present in close families as well as broken ones, is the danger of losing one's true identity and purpose. Jesus knew how powerful families are in our lives. And if we listen closely to what he was trying to tell us in these disturbing words, you just might hear a helpful word of warning about the danger of giving your family too much allegiance. The emphasis in today's text is on loyalty to God, and that takes precedence over any other loyalties, even to family. The early Christians discovered this bravely, and many of them were forced to choose between following their families or following Christ. In America, that is usually not that divisive a choice. In many parts of the world today, it is very stark. And when one decides to follow Christ, their family disowns them. In modern times, and in our day, many Christians, even maybe here, have had to take stands in the last 30 years against such things as segregation. There are ministers in my denomination, it costs them jobs when they bravely would get in the pulpit and say, the segregation of the races is wrong. And their families were upset about them. And their churches were. I'm reminded of that one comic. It had uh, the, the minister was obviously coming home. He had everything in his office in his box. He was at the door, and um, his wife met him at the door, and the caption on the comic said, I told them the truth, and they set me free. (laughs) But you have to take stands sometimes. Racism, uh, sexism, materialism, even when it has resulted in conflict, and sometimes ostracism from families. You believe what? All of us in this assembly have learned a lot of good things from our families of origin, and we gather here this morning to celebrate that. But if we were to be as honest as Jesus demands in today's scripture and not make idols of our families, 
then we'd have to admit it would be foolish of us to emulate everything that we've learned from other family members, even our parents and grandparents. For no one is perfect, only God. So what do we do with this text? I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. Who was Jesus' father? Who's Jesus' father? Yes. And it's made clear. I'm going to take you through a few things in Matthew here. From the very beginning in Matthew's gospel, if, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me in chapter 1. But if you don't, don't worry. It begins with an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then for the next 16 verses, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat. Or in modern translation, David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. That's a funny way to begin a gospel. And then we get to verse um, uh, 15. Eliud was the father, or begat Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. And it's almost like the writer is setting you up, the gospel writer. And Joseph was the father of Jesus, right? But it comes to a screeching halt. All of a sudden, the rhythm's broken. Joseph is never referred to as the father of Jesus. Joseph, the husband of Mary. And then you know about the birth and all of that. And every time Joseph then is referred to in relation to, it's always husband of Mary. Like in verse 19, her husband, Joseph, never Jesus' father. Matthew is making a point beginning in chapter 1. Fatherhood for Jesus is going to be redefined. That's one point. Second point. I could go through a lot, but I'm just going to make three. Do you remember the sons of Zebedee? Who knows the sons of Zebedee was a Greek word for thunder. I think maybe the sons of Zebedee were James and John. They were called to be disciples of Jesus. Sons of Zebedee, and many believe that that means that their father was a thunderous kind of guy. He probably had a temper or something. And based on how their mother acts, you can see that so. Sons of Zebedee. And they are referred to in Scripture frequently as the sons of Zebedee, except when they're doing the will of God. When they're following Jesus, they're never called the sons of Zebedee. They're referred to as James and John, the brothers, James and John. But I want you to trace it sometime. Just do a Bible study whenever James and John are referred to. But whenever James and John or their mother starts acting up, the gospel writer comes back, the sons of Zebedee. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Put another way, it's this. The human father of the disciples are only referred to 
when they are either sinning or going opposite of the way of Jesus. When they are following Jesus faithfully, they're called brothers and by their real name. And that's consistent throughout Scripture. That's yet another cue that Matthew is trying to redefine what fatherhood is. Third point. I asked you, who's Jesus' father? Did you know that in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, God, Jesus refers to God from the very beginning as your father. Your father. In the Gospel of John, just to make a distinction, God is never referred to as your father until, uh, until late, one, one time later on. Jesus always says, you know, my father, or the father, but never your father until late. Matthew, it's a little different. The gospel writers, you know, they have a, they have a different emphasis on that. For Matthew, Jesus, for Jesus, it's our father. And so, if you go to chapter 6, Verse 7, when you are praying, Jesus says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Episcopalians do. (laughs) As the Gentiles do. (laughs) It's not empty phrases, they're beautiful words. (laughs) For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For what? Your father. Different than the other gospel writers. From the very beginning, your father knows what you want before you need before you ask him. And so when you pray, say what? Verse 9. Our father. That is the only gospel that refers to that prayer as our father. You know there's a version in Luke. And for those of you who have the King James Version, I think it's Luke 11, Luke the 11th chapter, where the disciples go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. Luke 11, beginning, and Jesus says, when you pray, say, what does your translation say? Father. Any of you have a King James? King James, King James Version says, our Father. But we know now, as, as you know, King James has to be up. Now there's a new King James. Another, it didn't have the oldest manuscripts. That it, now everyone knows the oldest manuscripts did not have Our Father. It's only Matthew. Our Father art in heaven. And by the way, one Sunday, I could do a whole sermon on that Lord's Prayer. Our Father. It's always us. Our. It's all of us. What am I saying? And And... and spending so much time about Father. The Gospel of Matthew wants you to know that you have one Father. And, yes, we have earthly fathers, in it, but the emphasis, the emphasis is that because of this one Father, we are all family who do the will of the Father. We are family. And I don't, want, I don't want to spend 
uh, too much longer on this because it's hot. And, um, and I, I, I don't want to help your ministry of rest this morning in the service. But, I, but, if we, um, but what you can consider more and more is that Jesus is trying to break down something that was a problem in his age and we still have vestiges of it today. And that is this. The point Jesus wants to make is your sense of family is too small. It's too small. And Jesus uses, uh, does that by using emphatic language which especially in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses a lot. What do I mean by emphatic language? In, in Matthew, Jesus has no problem saying, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Better that you, don't, you can't see than have the whole body thrown into hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus must have been quite a preacher. By the way. <laughs> now, What do you make of that? Jesus was using emphatic language. Obviously, that is not to be taken literally, or we would be an eyeless, toothless race (laughs) and a handless race. But Jesus would, would would emphatic say in the strongest way possible in order to jolt the hearers, to say he's really making an important point. So the same thing here in today's gospel lesson. Don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace, but the sword. Whoosh. Do I have your attention now? (laughs) It was what we might call today a homiletical device to grab attention. And the point is, as you're saying, as I said earlier, your sense of family is too small, unless we get beyond the understanding that really it's about my family. My, whoever's in that household, and as Jason knows, I could have done a whole sermon on what household means and family in the scriptures. House, when they talked about home, using the Greek word oikia or oikos, it's more than that nuclear family we talked about. For instance, Households include slaves and all of that. And so, um, but unless you get beyond, it's my family, my clan, my ethnic group, my denomination, my church, my race, my nation, that is most important to me, then there is no hope for the world in which we live. And there's no hope that we can grow into the persons we were created to be. Jesus knew that the inability of groups to move beyond their own limited parochial concerns will inevitably lead to more conflict in the world, despite the seeming peace one achieves by limiting oneself to one family. Do you want to know what that looks like when you don't move beyond the parochial? It looks like present or recently past conflicts in the former Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland, Ukraine, the Sudan, Rwanda, 
Pakistan, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, and countless other places where people have substituted love of family, clan, race, and religion for the love of God. I'm going to say that again. They have substituted love of family, clan, race, and religion for the love of God, even in our own beloved United States. And so, my sisters and brothers, and that's a cue, Matthew, <laughs> and Mary, <laughs> and Joseph. By the way, it, became a, a, it becomes apparent to me, stand up, Joseph. These are, so this is the holy family, Joseph, Mary, and Matthew right here. Who are, <laughs> I've been talking about what Matthew has been doing all the time. So this is a cue. Um, to say, I love my father. Jesus honored his father and mother. He mentioned that earlier on in the gospel. He respected that. But I want you to look around to each other. Just as on the cross, Jesus, at the end of the gospel of Matthew, when his mother came, he said to his disciples, Behold your mother. Behold your sons. Jesus is about expanding family. God help the church and religion whenever we try to constrict it. Imagine the last person you want in your family. And that's the one, Jesus says, to call your brother, your sister, and your friend. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that's the highest honor to call someone your friend and you make them a part of your family. So, just briefly, look at the person next to you. That's your sister. That's your brother. That's your son. Your brother. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.